Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology for the arts inclined. I'm Ramnik Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, EA lies to our faces, and Grand Theft Auto is banned down under. Plus, Microsoft tries their best not to ruin Christmas, and once again, we remind ourselves of our own mortality. And we talk about the enemies in our theme month with Space Team and Game Clones. But first, we talk about Endless War and Battlefield 3. So we've been talking about friends and local multiplayer for a few weeks now. But we haven't talked as much about enemies. As often as we talk about the power of multiplayer to create friendships, it's just as capable of dividing people. Take a recent Call of Duty or Battlefield, for example. These games aren't interested in local multiplayer. They want you to play online with large groups of people. In military shooters, you play as a soldier. Sometimes you're on a team, and sometimes you're on your own. But in either case, you need to gun down as many enemies as you can to rack up your score. These games are gritty, violent, and aim to be realistic, which is why they often take place in real places, often in the Middle East. So, do we risk thinking that these places are primed for warfare? Think about it. These are real places where soldiers killed each other endlessly, round after round. At the very least, Johan Hoglund thinks so. If you look at military shooters, they've been through a number of stages. They started out by describing World War II warfare, almost all of them. And they appeared in the wake of uh, Saving Private Ryan. Our objective is to win the war. And then we have the most recent generation of games that are set in the near future. In Call of Duty, uh, Modern Warfare, uh, and Battlefield 3 and, and 4 are the most obvious examples of those games. And what they do is they look at the near future, they envision a kind of coalition between Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East and Russian ultranationalism. Those two entities unite uh, to produce a confrontation between a coalition of Russia in the Middle East and primarily the United States, but the West in general. Sergeant Campbell, Blackburn, push on as required. Johan is an associate professor from Sweden who recently wrote a piece about how military shooters like Call of Duty, Battlefield, Medal of Honor, and the litany of others promote something called proleptic warfare. Proleptic warfare is a form of anticipatory warfare where you play a war game set in the near future. So this is a war that is somehow possible. It's tied to the historical present in such a way that the gamer can actually imagine that this is going to happen. But don't confuse this for saying that violent video games promote violence. In terms of playing with each other, Johan says that shooters often do foster camaraderie. So the real issue is not the gameplay itself, it's the maps on top of the gameplay. They uh, allow anxieties and senses of insecurity to come together. I think that is really what's going on. The Middle East, obviously, is a great source of of anxiety for the West, especially recently with the rise of IS, uh, the Islamic State, and the publication that that has received. But also, I think, in the United States, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq has created a sense of, of insecurity and also maybe of guilt. And it's kind of nice to to forget about that guilt. Uh, and I think to imagine the Middle East is actually truly a source of of some kind of terrorist horror relieves that sense of guilt, at least postpones it to some extent. In the same way, Russia today, I think, with the aggression that it's showing, 
in the Ukraine, for instance, also is, is also causing a lot of anxiety in the West, and people have begun to talk about maybe a beginning to a new Cold War here. So uh, certainly there are actual real political problems that surface here, but they're transformed in these narratives into conflicts that can only be resolved through violence, right? Which would be, I think most people would agree, a worst case scenario. Johan points out one level in particular, the Grand Bazaar level in Battlefield 3. The Grand Bazaar is a real place. It's one of the biggest marketplaces in Iran. I'm actually going to visit the Bazaar this December, so I can confirm real people live and work there every day. But here's how Battlefield 3 presents it. I'd, I'd first like to say that, of course... There are other actual sites that also appear in Battlefield, like, for instance, Paris is also the scene of a multiplayer map. So you also get to to play proleptic warfare in Paris. What I think is different between the Tehran map and the Paris map is that Paris is a site that people, even if they haven't visited, if if they inhabit the United States and they haven't gone to Paris, they've seen... Paris in in popular culture, and it's the home of romance. Uh, So war there is tragic, I think. Um, It's also entertainment, of course, but it's potentially tragic. If you think about the way that the Middle East has been, the way it's been depicted in popular culture during the past, say, 10 years, uh, if you think about that, and if you think about the way that it's been produced in games, the Middle East has been so connected to the battlefield. If you think about a battlefield, what you think about is often the Middle Eastern urban space, right? When you see a Middle Eastern urban space on television, you think, especially if you've played a lot of uh, Call of Duty and uh, in other game franchises as well, you, you automatically you think about it as a battlefield, I, I would theorize. But it isn't. I mean, that's the point I'm, I'm making here. It's not, that's not how it is, really. It's actually a, a real civilian space. It's a site for exchange, for, especially for, for a market, but also a site of religious worship, uh, a place for political interaction and interaction between people. Uh, and when you play the multiplayer map, all of that is gone. It ceases to be that kind of space. It becomes only and also forever a battlefield, right? It's not only that when you play it, the end of every game is the beginning of another one. So what you do in this site is you repeatedly enact a battle. Now, this map exists both in multiplayer and and in a single-player setting. How does that then change our reaction to it? Games are, are a number of things at the same time. Games are, are, are narratives, right? When they are as narratives, I think we're trained to to actually query narratives to some extent. I think narratives are educational and we tend to accept them, but it's a possibility to say, I mean, what I'm doing now isn't good. You can, to some extent, place yourself outside a narrative and question it. And that's often what we're taught to do when we study films or when we read novels. When you inhabit a space, that kind of critical attitude is suspended to some extent. Because a game is not just a narrative, right? It's also a geographical location. And that geographical location is also bounded, not just by a geographical boundary, but also by certain rules. 
So when you move into the, the multiplayer map, the multiplayer map essentially lacks a narrative, right? But there is a space there that follows certain rules. So all of a sudden you're in this battle space and there's only one way to interact with people in within this space. You can talk to your fellow players, of course, but you can only shoot the people that, that you face. There's no other way of negotiating uh, an ending to this multiplayer map. And I think that's actually important because you're not going to say, this is not what the Grand Bazaar looks like. I know because I've been there, right? You're, you're going to, to actually move into this space. And if you're a, a habitual gamer, you're going to feel very comfortable in this space. And you're not going to say, this is not really what this space is about. So it's, it'll see very natural to you. Is setting a map in a real location innately commentary on that place when it comes to first-person shooters and military shooters in particular? I think it is. I, I think it's, it also instructs the gamer. Whether that's intentional or not, that's a completely different kind of discussion. Johan thinks the developers recognize how these games represent the Middle East and other exotic locales. Consider the most recent Call of Duty game, Advanced Warfare. It's set in the far future, and the enemies aren't Russians or Muslims, they're Americans. Uh, I think there's a discussion going on, and you see some games actually moving away from this, some game manufacturers. Uh, there's a really interesting game, I think it's called Special Ops The Line, it's based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Uh, but I think that many games are caught up in what James Durdurian has called the Military Industrial Media Entertainment Network. I guess what it ultimately comes down to is, are these games, or do they risk being propagandistic? Absolutely. The fact that America's Army is a computer game, a first-person shooter, that's also a recruitment vehicle. Uh, America's Army was uh, invented as a way for the U.S. Army to recruit young and computer-savvy people, the kind of young person who wouldn't walk into uh, a recruitment office and get recruited that way, drafted that way, or recruited that way. So, of course, there's an element of propaganda here. It's important for those game manufacturers to toe the line to some extent. But I think there's also a possibility of breaking out of that kind of context if you want to. And as games become more and more successful, uh, they become more and more independent of that kind of narrative. I also think that gamers are intelligent people. And when you look at the forums that belong to games like Call of Duty and, and Battlefield, you see some people embracing the kind of narrative that these games produce and the spaces that they produce. But you also see a lot of people being critical and, and making fun of it. And I think that when game producers see this, they want to tie into that too, more and more. And if we look at the future generation of first-person military shooters, they tend to be said in, in not the near future, but the slightly more distant future, like 20 or 30 years into the future. And the enemy in some of those games is not necessarily the Middle East, but it's the kind of military industrial complex that is being created or has been created in the West. So drones is seen as a problem. That kind of, of, of story is also being told by games. Do you feel like a hero yet? All right, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Johan Hoglund is an associate professor at Linnaeus University. He's also the author of a new book, The American Imperial Gothic, Popular Culture, Empire, and Violence.
Broadway has had a long and story history, this being electronic arts, of buying studios. That was how they they gained things like Origin, creators of Ultima. And is, not, uh, surprisingly, not creators of Origin. No. <laughs> Although the, I imagine that did help down the line. With the branding, yeah. Uh, specifically, every year since 1991, that is what? I don't. I can't do math. I think that's fourteen, fifteen years. It, no, it's 13? more than that. It's tw- no, it's not. It's like twenty three. Okay, <laughs> 20, it's 24, 23, 24 years. Electronics Art has bought themselves a nice holiday gift by buying at least one developer and adding it to their growing army of sleeper agents. Their biggest recent purchases were in two thousand eleven, buying PopCap for seven hundred and fifty million dollars and a Bioware Pandemic package deal for seven hundred and seventy five million dollars in two thousand seven. But according to EA's CFO, Blake Jorgensen, the company has only seen marginal success from acquisitions. Oh, no, wait. So you're telling me that the milking of Mass Effect, Dead Space, and Battlefield only count as marginal successes? Yes. Nothing beats the sales of sports games. Uh, instead, Jorgensen wants to end the year promising less acquisitions and more innovation for him within, which I think is code for development being very expensive, and with layouts on the horizon, EA devs might want to be more creative in smaller teams. Triple A! Yay! Okay, so... so- what what okay what what I think is what you mentioned is true like this is a matter of the fact that they can't it's just simply not economically viable it's not a matter of them trying to take a philosophical stance like it just doesn't make sense for them they don't they're, they're not a growing company anymore yeah. but I feel like this is a this is also what they tried to do during that early phase when they had uh, de- for, first had Dead Space come out when they first had um, Mass Effect uh, Mass Effect when they first had Mirror's Edge it was all of those we're going to innovate with all these new studios yeah and then but what always happened was then they had to take those studios and continue to innovate by that means finally milk for pro- the, the profit out of these games they had spent a lot of money on. Yeah, and and the thing with is trying to innovate from within, the core EA Studios, the only core EA Studio left, I think, is Tiburon, and they're having a lot of trouble putting out a sports game. Their sports games have become steadily more challenged, and with the yearly cycle, it just seems like these these games are becoming less essential as time go by because I mean what what one of the reasons for having Ma- uh, the new Madden right was because you had to have that in order to change the lineups but with the lineups becoming something you can just download something you can just be- integrate into the game it it's starting to make more sense just to have like some kind of season pass or some kind of sport um just update that can update all the stats of the players in the game and just keep on going the gameplay doesn't necessarily need to significantly change yeah. Also, but because they still have to make those changes year to year to make it not like a complete waste of money, you end up having these really rushed garbage packages. And I mean, EA Canada had to put out the new NHL game, which is missing, I believe, like 70 to 80, which was on launch, missing like 70 to 80 percent of its features. Yeah. And because also this transition to new consoles where they still kind of have to divide their time between like seven different systems. So as a result, they end up this is just an expensive process and they end up cutting a lot of features. To some extent, this could be a good thing. I mean, what a lot of people hoped for was that the, was that the new set of consoles would mean new IPs, would mm-hmm. need new properties, would need, need need some kind of like creativity here, as opposed to. I mean, Dragon Age turned out to be a decent game, which surprised everyone. Sure, but I think that's that, that's the thing. Like, that was a surprisingly decent game. Everything mm-hmm. else has come out this year has been a mess. Yeah, or a and, remake. And I think what the thing with Dragon Age is that it's not a yearly franchise. It's yeah. not one of EA's typical stock games, and it's not something they can rely on on a regular basis. Right. I mean. Listen, I've got a 
PS4 coming in today or tomorrow, and I am most excited to be playing a remake of Dark Souls 2. Yeah, yeah. That's is clear. genuinely the game I'm most excited for. It's coming with a remake of The Last of Us. The the top-selling game right now on it is Grand Theft Auto V, which came out last year for last-gen consoles. Yeah, but just not much here. So, mm. do you think they should bring back my dad's construction set? I think that that's probably in the works. Probably in the works? Yeah. Probably um, Ultima, the new Ultima series. And uh, speaking of Grand Theft Auto and innovation. <laughs> so both Target and Kmart Australia have banned the newest in a long-running series of shoot-em-ups called Grand Theft Auto V after an online petition reached 41,000 signatures. Can can we please go to start calling Grand Theft Auto crime-em-ups? Crime-em-ups? We have shoot-em-ups, beat-em-ups, crime-em-ups. Yes. It's hard to pronounce. It sounds like I'm eating cookies <laughs> while I say it, but it's fun. All right, so Grand Theft, this, we're talking specifically about Grand Theft Auto V, the remastered version. Yeah, for PS4 and Xbox One. That came out, and apparently um, this petition was launched by a group of women who had suffered sexual abuse and violence um, and take issues with Grand Theft Auto treatment of women, which admittedly is terrible. Which really, yeah, really bad. Uh, the petition also specifically aimed at having Target take the game off store shelves, no other store, which is sort of weird, but really puts the pressure on them that if they don't take them off, they look like really terrible people. Yeah, so and then recently, um, New Zealand's largest retailer, NZ Warehouse, pulled out uh, copies of GTA 5 from shelves as well after Shop Demand Foundation put pressure on them. They took issue with the, f- with the first-person mod upping the ante, apparently. Whatever that means. Yeah. Um, the, the, a quote from uh, from a statement from Strauss Zelnick, chairman and CEO of Take-Two Interactive Software, we are disappointed that an Australian retailer has chosen to no longer sell Grand Theft Auto V, a title that has won extraordinary critical acclaim, has been enjoyed by tens of millions of consumers around the world. Now, I will say that that doesn't like address anything. No, I mean, just because it's enjoyed by a lot of people doesn't Critically mean acclaimed. It, you still literally beat up a woman. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And, like, you can still... There's... But there's still aimless, senseless violence, and the treatment of female characters is so abysmal. Like, it's... To some extent, I feel like Saints Row has had better treatment of women. Saints Row has significantly better treatment. I, my, my favorite thing to point to is that Saints Row 2, which is not the newest Saints Row, Saints yeah. Row 2 has a mission wherein you go to strip clubs and you beat up people who, uh, who try to assault uh, st- strippers and dancers. And in, Sa- in Grand Theft Auto 5, you have a mission where you beat up strippers and dancers. Yeah. No, it's... Um, Saint, by the way, did you see that the new Saints, the Saints Row uh, Get Out of Hell, the expansion pack, has a musical number? Oh, really? Yes. Oh, awesome. Saints Row's amazing. Yeah. By the way, guys, don't buy Grand Theft Auto 5. So, buy Saints Row 4. Yeah. So, okay, violence against women in, in Grand, Theft, Grand Theft Auto is problematic, and it's probably the worst of its kind in mainstream gaming. Now, I get the the excuse that's often lobbied on its behalf is that it's trying to both represent a typical kind of action movie, right? These are very much pulled from Michael Mann films. These are Heat, you know, uh, Reservoir Dogs, very specifically with the heists. And those movies don't have very good treatment of women. And to some extent, those kind of characters, these are bad characters. These aren't people we should aspire to. Very clearly despicable characters. Yes. And while these characters are also, we aren't embodying those despicable characters. We aren't sort of inherently encouraged to identify by them. Yeah, and we're supposed to identify against them, which is what Max Payne is really good at, as we identify as this sad, washed-up loser. It does put you more in the position of a character than it would otherwise. It doesn't separate you. It doesn't. It's very difficult to separate the player from this character who is being a complete jerk um, on screen. I, but I don't know if this is validated. Like I don't. I this game, despite its terrible treatment of women. I don't know if this is a good precedent for what it's worth taking a game off a shelf. 
Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't know if I'm really comfortable with banning a game. I mean, this isn't a ban, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's not what's happening. The game will always be available if only through digital downloads or Amazon orders or Steam. Yeah. Um, it's not like anybody's being censored here. No, but, it's just like some retailers chose that they don't which, want this kind of which representation. I, which I like because it feels like a really hard anti-Gamergate rebound. Right. To avoid saying, that, you know, I apologize for bringing up the dreaded GG word. <laughs> um, but after that, you know, whole mess, I, I think retailers are more interested in not looking anti-progress though they might be veering pretty hard to the left here. Anyway, I'm glad Target Australia has joined the Social Justice Party. Um, they can be our Social Justice Crocodile Hunter. Um, I'm pretty sure Daniel just wrote this whole segment just so you can make that one joke. Yes, I did. <laughs> That's not a knife. This is progress in video games. Do you remember Xbox Live Indie Games? Because I don't know if Microsoft does. Um, Xbox Live Indie Games were a part of the Xbox 360 online store, which was made for low-cost games designed with XNA, uh, Microsoft's programming language for 360. It was best known for $1 stuff like I Made a Game with Zombies in it and Endless Minecraft Clones. Also, a lot of Avatar-based first-person shooters. A few weeks uh, weeks ago, developers began noticing that Microsoft was late on their third quarter payments for indie game developers. Um, Payments are usually due within 45 days of the quarter ending, which would have been November 15th. Microsoft says that this is the result of a technical issue that they're working on, but it's really weird that this issue just suddenly crops up now (laughs) after years and years of it working perfectly fine. The issue only affects Xbox 360 devs, not Xbox One developers who are paid through the ID at Xbox program. Um, Xbox says payments should go out in the next two days. Fun fact, while Sourcing the story, I ended up on the Twitter page of Freelance Games, one of the developers who hasn't been paid. Their Twitter background is art from their game called Cherry Poke Prison, and is just a lot of crudely drawn women with giant breasts. <sighs> Xbox Live video games, everyone. Yay. Uh, uh, so, so, I mean, these are bad video games, usually. For the most part. There's a couple, like, there's a couple good stuff. There's, I mean, I Made a Game of Zombies in it is a, you know, it's a classic. It's a if you could use that word. For $1, it's definitely worth the experience. It's got, uh, I mean, we talked uh, earlier this mu- earlier this month or last month about um, Hidden Plain Sight, yes. which is an Xbox Live Indie game and totally worth playing. There's a couple good games there. But then there's also, like, Avatar Falls Downstairs. <laughs> I mean, and there's also all. I mean, for a long time, the 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 indie charts were just completely swallowed by Minecraft clones. They still are. Now yeah. it's Minecraft Call of Duty crossovers. Oh, fantastic! So like Mine Wars or but, Call of Crafting. So I mean, like it's not like these these games are the cream of the crop. But look, if they they're owed money, they're owed money. They're owed money. Um, Microsoft only has two weeks to pay devs before Christmas. There are twenty days to Grinchhood. Start the countdown. <laughs> Well, okay, so long as we have 20 on the clock, there's another thing that turns 20 today, or turns 20 by the time this episode goes up, and that's the PlayStation. Um, so the PlayStation is the greatest console mankind ever ever birthed. So last um, week, last week we had discussed this privately, and I said that the DS was the greatest system ever made. Yeah. And you said, no, it is a PlayStation, so tell everybody why you are right today but wrong on all other days. <laughs> why is tonight different from all other nights? Because the PlayStation came out tonight, so it's okay. <laughs> So the PS1, okay, just the PS1 first of all came out on December 3rd, 1994 in Japan and was a direct result of Nintendo being uh, really silly. Basically, they wanted a CD player so bad that they made a deal with Sony to build a Super Famicom PlayStation. It's very important that it's two words. <laughs> and would play Super Nintendo carts as well as Sony manufactured CD games. However, when Nintendo president and celebrated madman Hiroshi Yamauchi uh, read the contract, he realized it gave Sony complete control and ownership of all Nintendo games released on CDs. Um, so he did what anyone, any reasonable human being and businessman would do and 
and canceled the deal without telling Sony. At CES, uh, Consumer Electronics Show, 1991, when Nintendo was supposed to announce the PlayStation, Nintendo of America President Howard Lincoln instead walked up on stage to announce their brand new partnership with Philips. Uh, because <laughs> right as Hiroshi Yamauchi canceled the deal, he sent um, Hiromu Arakawa, his son, and Howard Phillips over to the Netherlands to strike a deal with Philips, wherein they, Nintendo owned all the CD games. <laughs> uh, Chief Engineer Ken Kutaragi tried to taking the work he'd done to Sega, who vetoed the idea, saying, quote, Sony doesn't know how to make hardware and they don't know how to make software. Who would even want this thing? <laughs> uh, which say- is great because the Sega, the Sega was then working on the Sega Saturn, which is the worst engineer console in human history. It has a daughter board. Uh, eventually, after working his way through contract disputes with Nintendo, they changed the name to the Sony PlayStation, one word, cutting them out of the deal. Uh, they actually made about 100 Sony PlaySpace stations. Yes. Uh, before they cut the deal. There's about 100 of those in the wild, and they're very rare. Um, but Kuragi got them to agree to releasing the PlayStation, and thus Nintendo made their own worst enemy for the next decade. Literally, Sony would not be in this business had Nintendo not tricked them mm-hmm. uh, at the very last well, minute. Here, the thing that happened, Ken Kuragi had worked with Nintendo before, and Ken yeah. Kuragi is a super important player in this PlayStation story. When Nintendo was building the Super Famicom, they were on the market for sound chips because the any they wanted stuff that could do sampling, because that was a right. really big deal. And basically, he waltzed over to Nintendo and sold them on Sony's brand new line of sound chips. Uh, and so he was kind of like in at Nintendo. You know, Yamauchi kind of knew who he was. All the, all the developers knew who he was. Everybody was familiar with working with Sony. He wanted Sony to get into game development and Sony didn't want to. Yeah. So had the deal worked out differently... He might. We might have just had Ken Kutaragi being a businessman at Nintendo or a hardware guy at Nintendo. Had Nintendo canceled the deal amicably and said, hey, we don't want to work with Sony, but we do want to work with you, Mr. Kutaragi, to bring your ideas to us and we will hire you. Had Yamauchi not been insane... <laughs> But but talking about Sony for a second, Sony did a really like I I mean we weren't necessarily super cognizant of Sony's advertising back then, but they sort of advertised it the way that they advertised the PlayStation was actually taken and adopted by the way Apple advertised the iPod early on. Yeah, they kind of put it in clubs, they made it look cool, they marketed it specifically at teenagers to young adults, and it was like. That market was was very unique because Nintendo and Sega had been targeting the a younger demographic. Mm-hmm. It was old, it was young teens and well, like Sega was of... very much at preteens. Like okay, so mm-hmm. how was that Nintendo marketed at kids who wanted to be preteens by advertising a preteens with a kitty bent? Yeah, Sega was advertising a preteens want to be teens by being radical and extreme. Yeah. <laughs> Sony was advertising to teenagers who wanted to be grown-ups with mature-rated games. Yeah. And yeah. that was the big deal. Was that they had this, they had a much more diverse lineup, and mm-hmm. they had one of the best RPG collections on consoles. They do. It is one of the best. doesn't hold up so great, but you do have really incredible games like Vagrant Story, like Parasite Eve, I'm listing the games that nobody played but me, <laughs> so please say something that people did play. Uh, Wild Arms, um, Final Fantasy. <laughs> no. This is so okay. people, everybody did play Wild Arms. Everybody played Wild I- Arms while they were waiting for Final but I mean, I played Wild Arms. Someone gave me that disc, and I accidentally put it in my PlayStation because I thought it was Final Fantasy VII. And you couldn't stop playing it because you well, you just left it on the main screen because <laughs> it had the world's best opening song. It, yeah, I mean that beat, man. Do, 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 do. There, but yeah, other like tons of great yeah. RPGs. Final Fantasy Tactics, Final Fantasy Nine. I um, I actually like. We we talked about how much Final Fantasy VII is a step in the wrong direction in a lot of ways, but I really when it when it came out and my younger self, I really enjoyed Final Fantasy VII. Like that game had 
for for all of its misgivings, it had a really great soundtrack and it had a really good aesthetic. Like the mm-hmm. um, oh, def- I think I agree with you 100 percent on the aesthetic. Yeah. I think its soundtrack is the worst. I think I, Final I, Fantasy VII has a five disc soundtrack, four discs of which you can call and get rid of because they're all just variations on. That main theme, though, you could play it. Oh yeah, the, you could play it, and like the, the main theme of seven, not just the Final Fantasy theme. Um, you could play uh, it, and I would like Eris' theme. Yeah, 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 and I would, I would instantly recognize it, even though like it's Eris, Eris' theme or Eris' theme, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. It does not matter. Get over it, chat, weeaboos. Um, uh, Genova, yeah, is incredible, and I, I personally really like Honeybee Manor. The um, <laughs> the also the, the soundtrack the, the sounds they use in the casino those are usually oh yeah fun. the 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 Final Fantasy game on PlayStation that had the really incredible soundtrack to me was eight oh because it was just true. five discs of of uh, Uematsu shredding his Stratocaster check out my new guitar guys it was yeah, it, it was him discovering that rock, rock guitars were a thing yeah um the uh but I I see while you were playing Final Fantasy seven I played a bit of Final Fantasy seven but it didn't capture me and I think I was also a little younger than you yeah. um by by year or two but specifically what captured me is I got to play Final Fantasy five for the first time right and that game is still my favorite Final Fantasy I mean it also had like one of the that was how a lot of people found Final Fantasy three again was yeah. through the updated version that came with tactics right so um, that, I played the whole bunch of that as well yeah yeah like the, I also the, played the really awful port of Chrono Trigger the really awful port of Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross man I love Chrono Cross do you want to talk about Chrono Cross for half an hour <laughs> I don't I feel like that so, would so the thing about Chrono Cross and we won't talk about half an hour it also has it actually does have the best Playstation soundtrack bar none. oh no it's, it's great like it's got it's, it's got an amazing island theme and it, like um, it, it's very good with its environment but the thing that Chrono Cross has my favorite thing is everybody in Japanese has an accent and to localize that they couldn't figure out analog so they just created a random accent generator and they ran <laughs> unaccented text through the generator and it would just churn out accented. It would just insert like yas or mons and just like <laughs> character dialogue and stuff like that, or gov or mate for kid. That's which I mean, you got you got to appreciate the effort. That <laughs> that also seems kind of lazy in the end. But you know what? If you want to go about if you want to go about making accents and you want to have your own fantasy world, at least they went about mm-hmm. making an algorithm that would do it for them. Right. But just, not to just talk about RPGs, it had other really great games. It had Crash uh, Bandicoot. I'm not a big fan of Crash Bandicoot, but um, I'm a big fan of that commercial where Crash Bandicoot stands outside Nintendo headquarters and calls out Mario. <laughs> uh, it had uh, Jumping Flash. I was, that was decent, yeah. Vib Ribbon, the game we are responsible for. <laughs> yeah, no, again, like, for, uh, the rest of the Earth can thank us for uh, uh, bringing back, bring back Vib Ribbon. Uh, Parappa the Rapper. Oh, yes, I nearly forgot about Parappa the Rapper. Kick Punch, it's the best yep. game. It was the first glimpse of 3D that people got in mm-hmm. any serious form. Like, it took a bit. It wasn't until a bit after that the 64 came out, and it wasn't the 64 just wasn't as good well, graphically. To be fair, so the thing with that first year of PlayStation games, um, I believe it was Tom Kalinske who was running Sony at the time. No, it was Bernie Stolar, and Bernie Stolar said that. Basically, no RPGs. No RPGs, no 2D games. Yeah. We want this to be advertised on big 3D flashy hits. Right. And those 3D flashy hits were things like Crash Bandicoot, which weren't actually in 3D, but they were impressive to look at. Yes. It wasn't really until Mario 64 that 3D like game design actually was a thing. And it oh. wasn't until the PlayStation, ad, like the DualShock came out. Yes. Uh, that 3D actually became a thing on PlayStation. Uh, and I think it's impossible to overstate how important the DualShock is. Oh, I mean, like, that, that thing was basically invented to make Gran Turismo work better. Like, the... Um... Well, it was invented to make video games work better. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't think, like, modern co- controller design wouldn't be here without the DualShock. Oh, totally. Like, the... 
the DualShock controller, which, I mean, originally the PlayStation controller was literally just the face buttons. The it was D-pad. a Super Nintendo controller with handles. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, it was actually felt super awkward without those, um, without those analog sticks there in the yeah. middle to rest your thumbs. But like, otherwise, once they had those DualShock, it suddenly became, it, suddenly 3D games made way more sense. Mm-hmm. It, the D-pad, you weren't just negotiating the camera with like these random back buttons. Or you like the C, or the C buttons on the N64. Yeah, which was like incredibly misguided, what, mm-hmm. whatever Nintendo was thinking. Well, it's, it's because Mario 64 didn't have camera controls. Yeah, because every game, every console is designed around Shigeru Miyamoto's whims. <laughs> so the DualShock is super important, and the the thing that's so interesting to me about the PlayStation is that it's sort of the last time Sony got to let out the weirdest part of themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's also because all those Jumping Flash, Parappa the Rapper, and Vibribbon are first party releases. It's also the idea that like. The th- when you think about like f- that Sony All Stars game, mm-hmm. most of those characters that are from Sony are from this PlayStation era, right? Most of those big characters, there were uh, well, most they- of the recognizable ones. I would argue yeah. most of them aren't, but most of the ones that aren't just who like who is this guy from Killzone? He's just yeah, Killzone yeah. man. Yeah, I mean that that got infamous dude. The th- Parappa the Rapper, those yep. were the- that's like that's such Toro a- Toro Kun, yeah, which never came out here, but whatever. My favorite thing about Sony, so for a while there though, Sony was actually looking for a mascot. They didn't realize they didn't need one, yeah, because Nintendo had theirs, yeah, and because Sega had theirs, and it's because Sony ended up marketing themselves to an older audience that they didn't. They turned out not to, but- right? But that's why they had Polygon Man for a while, right? If you remember, Paul, Crash Bandicoot was it for a while. Yes. Like, he wasn't owned by Sony, so they couldn't actually do anything with him. He was owned by Universal, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, and so Sony invented Polygon Man, who never started in a game. In Japan, they nailed it. It was Parappa, and it was uh, Torokun. Right. My Nichiday Show never came out here. And that's my favorite. If you compare what Sony's advertising in Japan to America was, here it was PlayStation Underground, it was grunge, it was punk, it was cool, it was mature. In Japan, it was everybody can play. It was actually marketed very strongly at women. Women were the primary consumer of PlayStation because it was games for everybody. They were, it was music games. It was these games. And it was like, it wasn't seen... It, I think and also the leap there was that it wasn't seen as a toy, right? Yes. It was something that you could... It was a recreational device. But listen, I think without the PlayStation, gaming today would be incredibly different. Yes. I don't think Nintendo would ever have had to deviate off their path. I don't think Microsoft could have ever looked and said, we can get in on this. Yeah, um, I I don't think Sega would be dead. Oh no no no! Because the thing that killed them was just the fact that there there's only room for three people in this industry, and they're the odd man out. I don't know, man. It's my favorite uh, console, and that doesn't mean like I, I don't think like when we talk about favorites, I don't think it's you're uh, making an objective yeah. claim about this. Yeah, yeah. Like, look, the PS One was a great console, guys. Yeah, the was one of the best parts of my childhood. It's the, P- the DS has a strong put out there. Okay, sure. I think someone yeah. will fight for the Xbox 360. And, but look, there are a lot of good consoles out there. My, I, I my, think it's arguable he, that the PS1 is the best one. I, oh, 100%. I was going to wonder. It's, I think the PS1 is very power, like, has a very big place in both our childhoods. Neither of us, mm. both of us were PS1 kids. Yes. I think so. We're both Sony people. So what is your strongest PS1 memory? My strongest PS1 memory would have been playing Final Fantasy VII. Like, the just sheer lengths I went to get that game because I had a friend who had it on PC and then I had a friend who, he got his PlayStation and I just, like, I just felt, I had never had a console. I felt so behind the times and I needed one and I needed that game specifically on it. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) with the Final Fantasy VII, I ended up getting this used copy and... It was so glitchy that I'd end up having to comp- take it out every 15 minutes and just clean the disc because there would be like some magical new you scratch. Have to play it upside down. Yeah, <laughs> and as a result, the um, 
Final Fantasy VII was just a, such an ordeal that in the end I don't think I had, had that much fun playing it. But the that was like that was my strongest my strongest memory of the PS uh, PS One. And I, I I latched onto the PS One really closer to the end of its cycle. That um, I remember I think within within two years of getting the, my PS One, um, my dad went out and got a PS uh, PS Two, and that was and then I got Kingdom Hearts and that was that like that was uh, that was when <laughs> that I was the end of my life. Yeah, <laughs> my... that's, that's what made me the man I am today. <laughs> That's why you're. That's why I wear these giant floppy shoes. <laughs> Take any opportunity to dig at Kingdom Hearts. Um, I think my strongest. I have like two really strong PS One memories that fight over each other all the time. Right. And one of them is my dad coming. We we spent. We used to go to my my grandparents used to live in New York, and so we went there all the time in the winter, and we'd spent like a month or two there. And my dad would always, like, go and go out and come back with something crazy he bought in Chinatown for, like, $3 or something. And one day he went out and he came back with a used PS1. And this was, like, 1998, 1999. I was still young, right? And I had a, I was playing Game Boy. I was playing Pokemon. And this thing was just like, this is a crazy magical future box. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you like this? That's great. He had bought it to play Gran Turismo for himself. Right. Because he's a big car guy. And he's like, oh, you like that? Cool. Uh, and then he went out and he came back the next day with a giant binder of pirated games. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, yeah, this this one. Oh, yeah, no, they, they modded this when I bought it. They told me it was modded so it can play all these games. We don't have to buy games. And I'm just like, you mean we just, I have all the games? <laughs> and this is like 1999. So just about all the really great PS1 games have come out already. I think the, like the oldest game in there was Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah, yeah. That was like September 1999. This would have been like December 1999. And, like, the new games I purchased for the system were stuff like Parasite Eve and, um, and like, Final Fantasy IX, which is what which is the Final Fantasy I really liked. And I think that's because I got to buy it, you know, I was like, oh, I want that one yeah. instead of just being in this big binder of junk. But I played so much PlayStation over that winter break, and I played so much PlayStation going forward. Right. The, the, the memories I have the strongest of playing a game are Metal Gear Solid. Like, I, I I got it as a gift, but I saw it was M-rated, and I didn't want my parents to know, so I was, like, hiding it. And when they asked me what I was playing, it's like, oh, nothing, nothing. And I was, like, turning off the TV while the PlayStation was on to make sure they didn't see it. So there's more than one way a game can lead to enemies. You might form a rivalry in Street Fighter, or you could cheat in Counter-Strike. Or you could copy someone else's game and market it as your own. It's called game cloning. Someone sees a cool game out there and decides, I could make that. And a game clone is born. Cloning can mean one of two things. I think in, in sort of the colloquial sense, it really means that the visual appearance of the game and the gameplay elements have been copied in, in some substantial way. A, another way that a game could conceivably be cloned is by the copying of the actual source code or the underlying lines of code, although these days that's fairly rare. You don't really see that as much. It, it's more a copying of the game as it's interacted with by players and viewers. That's Bob Tarantino, an entertainment lawyer with Dentist Canada. He, alongside articling student Conrad Lee, can tell you that game cloning is a practice as old as the industry itself. So, uh, I mean, a good example of a game that survived was there was a fight between the makers of the game Asteroids and the makers of the game Meteors. Both games were fairly simple. These are very, very early games in, in the development of the video game industry. So 2D, monochrome, small player controls, a small 
on-screen ship, which to our eyes, you know, is almost unrecognizable, but basically was just a triangle, really. Um, and large rocks, asteroids were sort of floating towards the, the player's ship. The player, the on-screen icon or avatar was controlled by a, a trackball. Um, and the, the ship, the player ship, could thrust around and shoot. And uh, the games were functionally sort of identical. I mean, they, you know, they were really mostly the same game. And, and but the court at the time looked at that and said, you know, there are sufficient differences here. And it, from our vantage point, looking back, it's quite funny, I think, to see what the court identified as uh, the sort of significant differences. And the significant differences the court mentioned were, well, meteors, which was the second game. The gameplay was faster. The it was more exciting. Uh, the sort of tactile feel of how the player's avatar on screen moved around was different. And in the court's view, that was sufficient to to distinguish the game and, and to prevent a finding of infringement. But they seem almost mechanically identical. Yeah, and, and I think you know you touch on a, on a good point there because I think part of the reason that we can explain how the courts in the 1980s looked at these things was when you look at the mechanical limitations of the systems, when you look at the mechanical limitations of, you know, sort of computerized processing power at the time, the courts were saying, given these limitations, really what's happening here is people are just copying each other's ideas. They're not copying the games themselves. Uh, and that's quite a different result from what we're seeing today in the courts where, where things I think are drastically different in terms of the results. A bit more recent, I think, is an example for that is actually Street Fighter II. The other game is called A Fighter's History, made by Data East. And that one, I think, was more interesting because um, it was really a comparison of two games that really did mimic one another. Um, they decided that six of the, the eight characters in both games were actually largely the same. But the court in that situation, rather than looking at the mechanical parts of it, looked at the content and said, well, there's only a certain amount of different types of martial arts that you can actually use as representations. And they said, there's only so many ways you can kind of depict that. So based on that, they said, you know, three punches, three kicks, and directions are mechanically, yeah, they're the same, but there's really only one way to do that. And then in terms of the actual fighting styles, there's only so many ways you can do that as well. So there was no way that you could put copyright on that because it's it's just an idea. They point out, as will any designer, that games get copied all the time. The open world genre, where you explore a massive environment and complete extra quests, was once known as Grand Theft Auto clones. But Grand Theft Auto didn't create big worlds, it just popularized them. And you can say the same about almost any historic game. Doom didn't invent the first person shooter. And Super Mario Brothers didn't invent platforming. These are mechanics, and mechanics are copied and copied and copied, and copied, ad infinitum. Which is why you can't patent a game mechanic. You can, however, infringe on a game's copyright. Courts, when they're looking at these things, will try to adopt the point of view of sort of the ordinary observer, the ordinary player, and they'll look at it and try to assess, okay, would an, your ordinary player think that these two games are the same? When you assess the, the similarity of video games, the courts are called upon to try and set aside the underlying game mechanics because rules of a game cannot be copyrighted. And so it can be a struggle to try and explain to the court or try to get the court to appreciate what the difference is between the rules 
and just the on-screen visual depiction arising from the gameplay. Which brings us to the story of two enemies, that of Spryfox and Lollaps. Spryfox made a game called Triple Town. In it, you match objects to build new ones. Two hedges make a bush, some grass and some bushes make a tree, and so on. It's a city-building tile-matching game. They released it on Facebook in 2011, and a few months later, Lollaps pushed out a game called Yeti Town. It's pretty much the same game, just replaced by grass with snow. Which is why Spry Fox sued Lollaps and won in a U.S. court. Conrad Lee tells us more. When it comes to copyright law in itself, I think that one of the things that the court actually touched upon was there was only certain ways that you could do certain things, and the, the ideal size was kind of the board size that both games chose. And in terms of the, the rules and where you kind of stack things up in, in triples and you build a hierarchy of certain things, the... It's, it's similar to one another. So I think that definitely had some sort of interplay and in them finding that most people, the ordinary observer, would find this to be substantially similar. But I think that gamers are smart enough these days to kind of make the differentiation between the original and the, the game clone itself. And uh, some of the studies that I did, for example, with um, Yeti Town and Triple Town, the original in that situation, Triple Town actually did much better than Yeti Town in the long run. Stories of game cloning are rarely that pleasant. Vlambeer had their game, Ridiculous Fishing, cloned before they even released it. Meanwhile, companies like Zynga and King have blatantly copied games, making millions along the way. But take a listen to the story of Threes. It's a game you've probably played, but in its cloned form. 2048. So Threes is a game It came out I think roughly two years ago, and shortly after, a clone called 1024 came out, 21 days after the original game came out, and it kind of spawned a whole bunch of other clones. The 2048, or 1024 rather, was a clone that went up on Facebook. The rules were a little bit different. They had blocks in the middle, so rather than sliding one space, so if you're familiar with the, what threes is, it's a, it's a number game where you slide one tile at a time, and you try to match up the same numbers. So threes go together with threes to create six, six to go together with six to create twelve, and so forth. So in threes you could only move one tile over. With um, 1024 the difference in kind of the game design there was that rather than going one tile it's slid across the entire screen. And the same thing kind of happened with 2048 as well. So they were kind of copies of copies and 2048 itself was a free game that was online. And it eventually did very, very well, kind of surpassing threes to the point where it got a lot of publicity from news outlets and people actually started saying, well, this game is amazing, this is kind of the game that's defining this year. And the problem with that was the developers of three said, well, this is our original idea and we want to show that this is our original idea. And it got to the point where their voice was actually loud enough that some of the news outlets actually went back and said, you know what, the 20, 2048 is largely based on threes. And I think that in some ways it vindicated their kind of stance on it because they did increase sales from that negative publicity. But in the end, I think that for them, they were more, I guess, personally hurt from a creative angle. And I think that's the reason why they really felt the need to kind of put up their two-year history of, of the development of the game. Is there anything someone in that position can do to stop perhaps the spread of a viral clone? Well, I mean, there's definitely legal actions, but I think that it's expensive to, to pursue that avenue. I think that not everyone besides a big company like Zynga or King or 
whoever that, that's that size can really pursue these these actions against other studios. So there's definitely that angle, and I think the the other angle is really to reach out to other, I guess, social media or other forms of media. Definitely, there's a lot of studios that have done that, and to limited success or even great success, with, with the example of Threes and even Lambeer's Ridiculous Vision. Bob Tarantino is an entertainment lawyer at Denton's Canada. You can find him at entertainmentmedialawsignal.com. Conrad Lee is an articling student also at Denton's Canada. He's worked for Capybara Games and Electronic Arts. You can find him on Twitter at CaffeinatedKid. And if we're going to talk about enemies, we might as well talk about a game that ends friendships. How, how do you feel about facilitating the deaths of friendships via screaming? <laughs> so I, I, I really hope no one has actually lost their friends and or loved ones uh, by playing Space Team. I do get a lot of interesting uh, reviews on iTunes to the effect of, your game caused me to get a divorce. And then this, in the same review, it says A++ would buy again. Um, <laughs> That's Henry Smith, the designer of the mobile game Space Team. So Space Team is a cooperative shouting game. Um, it's played with mobile devices, at, uh, iPhones and Android, and you play as a team on a spaceship, and you try to try to keep the spaceship flying while being set upon by all sorts of uh, disasters. Panels of your spaceship start falling off, and you're also being chased by an exploding star. The uh, game lasts about five or ten minutes, and uh, you always lose. God damn it, set epsilon muffler to one. Well, Asteroid, everybody shake. Enable star magnet. Flush each gear. Set epsilon muffler to zero. Disengage amorphous dish. That's me. That's you. Set epsilon muffler to zero. Everybody shake. Shake. Henry was inspired by a particular sequence in Star Trek. You know the one. What's going on? We're under attack. Shield strength down to 52%. Minor damage to the port nacelle. Two Klingon attack cruisers decloaking to port and starboard. So I, I really like uh, Star Trek Next Generation. I was a big fan of that show. And whenever the ship would get hit with like laser blast or an asteroid or something, everyone would like shake in their, in their seats. Um, and then, of course, you know, the camera would shake as well. It looks like they're actually, the ship is actually moving. And I, I remember there's this, this a hilarious video where someone has applied camera, like D-shake, like a stabilization filter to a shot of the bridge of the Enterprise and like Picard. And, and Riker are there. Everyone is like sh- shaking around as if they're being hit by uh, a, a blast of some kind, but uh, but the camera is totally still. And so it's hilarious. They're just moving around in their seats. I wanted to capture that. I wanted to make a game where uh, at some point someone would say, Asteroid! And then everyone would shake as if they were on the bridge of the Enterprise and they'd just been hit. That was something from the very beginning I wanted to, I wanted to get in. And I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out because it's exactly what happened. And it just looks really silly when people are doing it. But for all the chaos in Space Team, it's actually inspired by board games. Space Team kind of feels like the last few rounds of Monopoly. You have to balance your properties, deal with other players, and try not to get screwed by the sheer randomness of dice. Henry is really into board games, so Monopoly wasn't really his frame of reference. He drew from games like Space Alert. What draws you to board game design when it comes to multiplayer experiences? I think one of the things I like about them is that they're pretty... Like you're forced to kind of distill your ideas uh, around game mechanics, anyway, in a board game. It, it, it's hard to make lots and lots of content for a board game. For a video game, it's easy. But for a board game, if you want lots and lots of content, then you need lots and lots of like pieces or board or little miniatures or, or whatever. And it becomes like really, really heavy and really expensive. 
So board games have, have to make do with mechanics. I find mechanics that I really like, or interactions that I really like, and I try to see if they would work with, with some kind of digital facilitation, like putting a computer in it games. Because some games work, work really well, I think, with the computer doing a bit of the heavy lifting. I was playing Tales of the Arabian Nights recently, which is this pretty big story game part of that game has the players you you like you, you go to a, a certain location and it and it says and it gives you some numbers and letters and it says you look up this number and this letter and this table and then there's a giant book of like stories and you match the numbers with them on the matrix and you look it up and and it gives you a little personal story about like exactly that combination of things that you that you drew from cards or that, that you rolled or, or according to your location so it's a really interesting sort of emergent story, but um, but there's a lot of like looking stuff up in tables and cross-referencing things in matrices, and and that stuff seems pretty awkward. So I think that'd be a great game to make a, a companion app for that that makes that stuff easy. It's just one example I think where where board games I think could be enhanced or improved uh, by um, by some kind of digital help. Even if you end a game screaming at your friends, Space Team is funny. The commands are hilarious, and balancing all the commands at once can be a lot of fun even if you do inevitably die. A big problem I've seen with cooperative games in particular is if someone knows the game well, uh, and these are like for board games like Pandemic or something, where everyone has a different role to play, if someone knows the game well, then they'll, sometimes they will end up sort of just masterminding everything and, and taking over, taking control, and, and when it comes to your turn, they'll say, okay, here are the, here are the things you should do, and, and you don't really get a choice. So that's a flaw with co-op games, and I wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So yeah, and Space Team, I think... Some of the reasons that doesn't happen very often is that this uh, hidden information, like you don't really know what other players have, so you can't help them. And, it's, and then it's also just too chaotic and fast to, uh, to try to micromanage the other players because uh, everything's happening at once. So, um, so I, think that, uh, I think that's important to make sure that, that everyone has agency. But I also think it's important that people don't get turned off if they feel like they're doing badly. And so that's one of the reasons I, didn't, I don't have leaderboards, for example, a team plays for the first time, they get to you know, sector four, say, but then they immediately get presented with a leaderboard and, and it shows them that our people are getting to level 20 or something. They might feel disheartened and maybe stop playing if they're trying for a high score because they maybe think they'll never get there uh, or it's too hard. But because it doesn't show a high score, it means that people can be proud of however far they've gotten. They can like brag about it to their friends or post it on Twitter or Facebook or something and say, like, I got to level six, beat that. And because it is an accomplishment and people need to be feel good about the game. And so even though you, you lose every time, I still want to leave people on a, on, a, on a good note and make them feel good about what just happened. And I think that's usually what happens. People usually uh, leave the game smiling. Henry Smith is a designer of Space Team based in Montreal. Space Team is available free on Android and iOS. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Johan Höglund. Bob Tarantino. Conrad Lee. And... Henry Smith. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people find the show. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. We've already started our newest theme, all about playing games with other people. We have a primer up on the site. This week, read up on how touching makes games good in an entirely PG-rated way. To keep up, make sure to follow us on Twitter at built to play And me personally, at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, we're the serial of podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>